Good morning, everyone. We're on the Curious Body podcast, and we're here with Ron Purser. He's head of the Mindful Cranks podcast, which serves as a forum for voices that go beyond the dominant narratives which have thus far been uncritical of consumerism, medicalization, psychologization, corporatization, and self-help approaches. We go through subjects in his upcoming book called Mick Mindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality. We talk about how the modern mindfulness movement has been transformed into a way for capitalism to keep spinning its wheel and it's been severed from its Buddhist roots. So enjoy and contact Ron at the end of this episode. Now, I understand you're a fellow Buddhist practitioner, so that's important. Can you please elaborate firstly on what type of Buddhism you practice, and then we'll get into the real juicy stuff about mindfulness? Sure. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me to your uh, podcast. Um, Yeah, uh, you know, in my early 20s, uh, I was kind of exploring uh, various uh, uh, pathways, and I would say probably in my mid-twenties, uh, I sort of accidentally stumbled upon um, the work of uh, a Tibetan Lama, Tarthang Tuku, uh, who uh, has a center in Berkeley, California, to, to the uh, Tibetan Nigma Institute. And so in my late twenties, mid-twenties, I started going there and taking courses and retreats and um but interestingly enough, uh, the, the practice that really I was drawn to uh, was a very unusual uh, teaching by Tarthang Tuku called the Time-Space Knowledge Vision, uh, which uh, was uh, his gift to the West uh, because it really wasn't uh, explicitly Buddhist uh, in terms of its, uh, uh, it wasn't linked to any particular uh, lineage or tradition. It was kind of a creative vision that he uh, developed uh, over a period of years. So I've been sort of uh, uh, involved with that since since my mid-twenties. But then when I uh, went to graduate school and I had to move away and move to the Midwest in Cleveland, Ohio, um, I really wanted a sangha. I really wanted to... Uh, uh, be with other uh, Buddhist practitioners. And the only center in Cleveland at the time was uh, the Cleveland Zen Center, but which was actually part of the Buddhist Churches of America. Uh, but the teacher there uh, in the evening uh, would uh, teach Western students uh, Soto Zen. So uh, I had some training in Soto Zen. Um, I've done various other kinds of uh uh, retreats and, and, and studies, particularly the Dzogchen uh, uh, school uh, of Nigma and Ma- uh, Mahamudra, the Kagyu tradition. Um, and only recently when I started becoming interested in the mindfulness movement, uh, I really had not uh, practiced uh, uh, the classical form of mindfulness training from the Theravada uh, tradition. Uh, that was all new to me, and so it wasn't until like 2012 that I started to uh, investigate uh, the classical teachings on mindfulness, uh, and I started taking uh, courses at the Insight Meditation South Bay, 
uh, with Shana Catherine, who runs uh, runs that center. So that's that's pretty much uh, in a nutshell um, uh, my uh, my journey uh, on the Buddhist uh, path. And you still practice regularly today? Oh yes, uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I do various forms of practices. Um, one of the things about one of the things about Tarthankuku uh, is he's continuously uh, producing new new books that are elaborations and expansions of his original uh, teaching from the time space knowledge vision teachings. So uh, there's always something uh, to investigate and to to explore. Definitely. It's fascinating that you're involved or were involved with the Dzogchen teachings. That's something I'm getting into lately. And it's quite mysterious and underground, I must say. Well, my primary teacher uh, uh, for Dzogchen teachings uh, is Alan Wallace, who I've been taking uh, courses with over the past four or five years. Uh, he's really a great teacher. Um, as well as some other Tibetan uh, lamas that come through uh, Northern California. So let's get into your book, Mick Mindfulness. Okay. So I read the whole thing, and I noted that in Chapter 6, you go into the fact, and this seems to be a theme throughout your book, that modern mindfulness, simply paying attention to the present moment over and over, can make one apathetic in the face of societal issues and systems like capitalism. Can you go over that with us? And is it safe to say in some sense that you're anti-capitalist? I think it's safe to say that, uh, especially where we are right now uh, at this juncture uh, in our global uh, world. Um, so yeah, I could try to unpack that uh, a little bit. Um, well, um, I think one of the key issues uh, that I um, that I address in the book is, and this is a theme that runs throughout the book, is the notion of uh, how stress has been privatized. And so uh, the mindfulness trend uh, has sort of embedded itself uh, in the biomedical and therapeutic uh, cultures. And um, so operating from within that domain, uh, it tends to psychologize and medicalize uh, social problems. And it really shapes our view of stress. Um, but, you know, for several decades before the mindfulness genie got out of the bottle, uh, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction and courses such as those were uh, situated in, in hospital clinics. And, um, and so we really have to look at um, this whole idea of the medicalization of mindfulness because it really does have its root in the biomedicine, uh, biomedical paradigm uh, where stress is understood and it's theorized as an individual level pathology or dysfunction in managing one's habitual thoughts or emotions and uh, mental ruminations. So psychosomatic symptoms such as chronic stress, depression and anxiety, uh, there are all sorts of interventions, mindfulness-based interventions 
uh, for enhancing health and well-being. But those are seen as matters for uh, autonomous individuals to resolve on their own. So this, this framing has sort of um, maybe unintentionally uh, delimited discourse to primarily viewing mindfulness as a standalone practice, number one. And uh, so the main message that we hear is uh, that stress is sort of all inside my head. And, um, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, he has a cultural diagnosis that he says frequently that our culture is uh, uh, suffering from a, quote, thinking disease, and that we're all sort of an ADD, attention deficit disordered nation. But that is a, you know, that's kind of an ideological statement that is really not really, uh, I think it's underappreciated how ideological that statement is, because it's basically saying it's not the capitalist economy or it's not the mass marketing of digital distraction by tech companies and everything else. It's, it's our own mind that, that's the problem. And that we're, uh, you know, the individual alone is responsible then. Uh, and if you fail to be mindful, if you fail to live mindfully in the present moment, uh, it'll always be your failure then, or your lack of will, your lack of motivation. And uh, so this message is sort of dressed up in, in neuro, the neurospeak and neurobabble uh, pseudoscientific rhetoric, the problem's all in your brain, and so we get into the whole sort of trend, trendy thing of self-optimization, you've got to hack your brain, you got to retrain it. Uh, these are all the tropes that you hear. you got to work it out. you got to work out, you know, you have to work out your brain like you do a muscle at the gym. But this sort of all uh, is encapsulated in a neoliberal uh, narrative of, or logic of self-care. And uh, that's part of what my critique is about. So I, I hope that addressed some of your question. Yeah, it does. Um, mindfulness in Kabat-Zinn's view is based on the individual and what they can do or not do for themselves rather than addressing the problems that are actually in reality. Well, yeah, uh, I, I think um, I think what happens in the mindfulness discourse is it's it stops at the individual level. Um, it sort of just leaves the individual hanging uh, on their own uh, to kind of become the ideal neoliberal subject. Because I think one of the issues here is, you know, how is modern mindfulness as it's currently in vogue, what is it actually doing? I mean, how, how is it creating a particular subject? You know, how is it shaping our subjectivity? And, and um, how is mindfulness put to use? You know, uh, once it becomes situated or recontextualized within uh, Western capitalist uh, economy and institutions, then it it starts to serve a particular purpose, uh, and and uh, those questions are sort of uh, not really taken seriously by I think the people in the mindfulness movement. The other thing is that I think the that where the hype has uh, become uh, almost uh, detrimental is there's kind of an implicit assumption that mindfulness is good for everyone. Uh, 
and uh, therefore everyone should should do it. It's very evangelical in that sort of missionary uh, uh, zeal that uh, has. Uh, and we find, we're finding that it's not good for everybody in all circumstances. Um, and that's a whole nother topic, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that doesn't mean we should simply get rid of them. Or uh, I'm not denigrating the therapeutic value uh, that people have found from uh, mindfulness-based interventions. My critique is, can we do more than that? Um, you know, this is this is a real. I mean, mindfulness as as it's entered uh, uh, popular Western Western culture, it's 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 in its infancy, really. And and so I'm trying to prod people to. To say, hey, maybe maybe we need to take this uh, beyond the individual level, and maybe we can create a practice that uh, puts mindfulness in a dialectical relationship with social, historical, and political realities. And so that's kind of uh, what I'm what I'm hoping that uh, that this so-called mindful mindfulness revolution. I don't see it as a revolution at all. I see it as kind of a uh, accommodation to to the status quo and to uh, keep it reproducing uh, 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 the machine of capitalism the way it's currently being uh, harnessed and co-opted. So do you feel like it's a bit of business propaganda for people who are involved in teaching mindfulness in this sort of sense that Kabat-Zinn does? Well, uh, if you look at the mindfulness industry, and, and it is an industry, it's, uh, I just saw the recent estimate, it's valued at a $1.1 billion industry. Uh, so there are vested interests in, in, in these uh, programs and meditation apps or whatever is being uh, peddled out there. Uh, and you know, it's, it's part of the larger umbrella of the wellness industry, which is valued at $4 billion. Um, so um, I think this brings up the issue um, is the question is, what is mindfulness for? Whom does it serve and for what purpose? And uh, by asking that question, uh, we could begin to uh, see uh, how mindfulness has, uh, has become uh, uh, instrumentalized. Uh, it's become a tool uh, in, in, in some ways to achieve some sort of uh, established purpose. Now in corporations, you know, it's uh, it, the, the promises uh, are that you'll become uh, uh, more successful in your career if you become more mindful and emotionally intelligent or uh, you'll be able to uh, uh, focus better and be more productive. Um, and so these are uh, particular purposes that um, what Barry Madgett, uh, uh, a colleague of mine, wrote, uh, he has a book called What's Wrong with Mindfulness, and he puts it very well. He says it's a workshop approach uh, to mindfulness. Uh, he he characterizes, characterizes it as a for-gain approach. In other words, uh, somehow mindfulness is instrumental to achieve some particular desire uh, or goal of the self. And from that point of view, it's... Uh, 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 it, it's problematic, I think, in some ways to to equate this form of mindfulness to the whole umbrella of mindfulness. 
Mindfulness itself has become such a catch-off word. It doesn't really, it becomes almost like a, Rorschach, a Rorschach ink plot. you know, like it, people can uh, read various meanings into how they want to uh, interpret what mindfulness means. It's, it's, uh, it become, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a, uh, a Western, American Western monk, uh, said something along the lines of it's become so vague and elastic that, you know, anyone could uh, derive a, any sort of meaning from the term. And that imprecision of the term uh, lends itself to all sorts of weird and uh, uh, commodified, uh, commodified uh, uses of it. Uh, I, I talk in the book in chapter one of the example of even how uh, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, has a commercial uh, talking about the comfort zone and mindfulness uh, can help you. Uh, now, it, you know, it helps uh, KFC sell chicken pot pies. Oh, I mean, this is just the, the kind of absurdity of, of uh, how it's become a commodity, a fashionable commodity in the marketplace. And so once you embed mindfulness in, in the marketplace, then market values tend to reshape and influence uh, uh, the practice itself. Yes, you've mentioned that uh, big corporations like Google and Apple have employed and hijacked mindfulness um, for employees to be better employees. And they really just took part of the Buddhist teachings, a small little sliver, and have used it for their own gain. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I like the way you put that, a small little sliver, um, extremely small little sliver. Um, and yeah, mindfulness in corporations has become extremely popular. Um, and there, there, I think there are numerous reasons for that, if you'd like me to talk about that. Um, um, on, a, on one level, uh, uh, I think mindfulness programs for corporations are really good PR, they're really good publicity. Um, and a friend of mine here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sean Fiat, uh, he, he compared uh, this publicity uh, aspect of, of corporate mindfulness to what he calls saffron washing. Uh, it's kind of the equivalent of greenwashing when uh, companies like uh, ExxonMobil and the oil companies started uh, having public service announcements uh, depicting how environmentally friendly they were. Um, and so to say that Google is a big supporter of mindfulness kind of sends a public message that its culture is a really caring environment and uh, besides all the free uh, gourmet food and free dry cleaning, the pool tables, they really care about employee psychological uh, uh, and spiritual needs and it's kind of hip and cool to do. Uh, so it, it's become a valuable marketing tool. And, um, but more importantly, I think what happens is that, and this is a key part of the, the critique, is it shifts the burden and playing field uh, when it comes to workers' complaints of workplace stress. Because of, if employees are stressed, then, well, hey, Google, Google has the program and uh, it has the cure, mindfulness courses. Um, the other thing I think about uh, mindfulness in corporations and society at large is it, it's starting to resemble kind of a 
postmodern form of, of the Protestant work ethic. Um, because it becomes kind of a salve, it becomes uh, kind of a uh, uh, an escape valve, uh, an escape mechanism uh, for tolerating uh, oppressive working conditions. Because it promises the employee that if you do mindfulness, you're going to get better at your career. You're going to be more successful. Um, and so I think that's uh, that's why I call it a capitalist spirituality. It's kind of the latest iteration of a capitalist spirituality. Um, and I think from this point of view, we can see how neoliberalism or neoliberal capitalism, it just has this insatiable uh, capacity to devour and invade all aspects of our uh, private, public and now private private spheres. So it, this is a trend that George Ritzer, who is a sociologist, uh, he wrote a book called The McDonaldization of Society. And that's really where the McMindfulness and McDonald's uh, uh, kind of converge in terms of the total commodification of everyday life. Um, the other, the other aspect I think is why so many corporations are getting on the bandwagon with uh, with mindfulness is is because um, uh, there was a Gallup poll uh, a few years back that at least in the United States that U.S. corporations were had uh, been suffering from over three hundred billion dollars in losses due to stress related uh, absences. And the lack of uh, employee engagement, that's the buzzword now. Uh, so um, these losses in production and, and, and these losses in efficiency, they're a threat to profit making. So, uh, uh, so mindfulness has become a new cultural idea uh, that can help serve the purpose of reproducing uh, the structures and norms of capitalism. So. From that point of view, uh, we can see that because historically now where we're at, I mean, neoliberalism sort of took off with uh, in the uh, early 1980s with Margaret Thatcher and, and then Ronald Reagan after that. So uh, it's been around a while, and it's in a way it's kind of dead, but it's almost like a zombie. It just continues to uh, to function. Uh, uh, ideologically in society. And so um, we could see that like historically then uh, we don't have as many unions as we used to used to. We don't have uh, the collective structures to voice dissent in the workplace. Those have sort of been uh, demolished. So employee voice now is manifesting in psychosomatic symptoms. Uh, it's a way of, uh, it's almost like a psychological protest, you know, I'm, I'm disengaged, you know, I, I really don't buy into the work I'm doing. Uh, I'm stressed, I'm working 40 to 70 hours a, a week. Uh, I'm constantly under threat of losing my job or I don't have health insurance, all these kinds of uh, uh, social anxieties, socio-political anxieties. And so corporate mindfulness comes in uh, and basically uh, offers a remedy, kind of a, a convenient remedy to uh, depoliticize stress 
and to uh, shift the burden to the individual uh, level employee. And uh, that's how it's been co-opted in corporations. Yeah, so it seems like these corporations, they're creating a problem. Um, and then they offer the solution, which is just... Uh, I mean, if they offered full-on Buddhism as a solution, I don't know how many people would take it because we're not that apt to be able to all follow that path in that way because it's a very big commitment. No, I, that's not... That would never happen. And um, the, the thing is that... Um, if we look at contemporary mindfulness, um, it's it's a form of Buddhist modernism. It's kind of a spin-off of that. And um, it's a cultural translation. It's a particular cultural translation. Uh, and that, that process of cultural translation uh, is, is, is fraught with, you could say, complex networks of interest. So people who have the money uh, people who have the dominant uh, sp space uh, in the uh, uh, mindfulness world. I mean, we also see uh, the, I, I address this, the academic uh, uh, science mindfulness complex. We have academic centers now, university centers, that are receiving an incredible amount of, of government funding and private funding. <laughs> so, uh, knowledge, you know, knowledge, the way it's being uh, uh, deployed for corporate purposes, this sort of knowledge of mindfulness, is not uh, politically neutral. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's beholden to certain interests. It's beholden to certain uh, uh, corporate uh, goals and interests. Um, and so... Um, I don't think I don't think that's really appreciated uh, in the discourse, the current discourse, popular discourse of mindfulness. Yeah, so I'm looking at your book in terms of you referencing uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Joseph Goldstein, and even Jack Kornfield, and Joseph Goldstein. I'm very familiar with his work and. He's helped me a lot in terms of even the simple breathing meditation because he uses verses from the Satipatthana Sutta, ever mindful one breathes in, ever mindful one breathes out. So he seems legitimate in that way, even though he is a modern person in the mindfulness movement. What do you think about teachers such as Jack Kornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and the contemporaries? Well, yeah, uh, yeah, they're definitely uh, devoted and uh, well-trained uh, uh, Buddhist teachers from the Vipassana insight tradition from Burma, uh, Myanmar, and, and Thailand, and so forth. Um, they're really kind of a uh, uh, an offshoot of, as I was saying early, uh, Buddhist modernism. So, um, you know, I think that uh, mindfulness. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, from the classic Sati, Satipatthana Sutra, it's a core teaching. It's a core teaching in that tradition. And uh, I think my, my, my real uh, uh, critique is more about 
uh, how we went from those classical teachings to some sort of understanding of mindfulness as nothing more than paying attention to the present moment. Um, because if you look at the Satipatthana uh, Sutra, there's actually no mention or instruction to be in the present moment, uh, non-judgmentally. Um, I think that's one of the issues uh, that that uh, um, that, uh, that that concerns me. Um, but on the other hand, um, I'm not really advocating any kind of Buddhist fundamentalist position that we need to return to some sort of idealized, authentic, pure uh, Buddhist uh, forms of mindfulness, because there is no such thing. Uh, mindfulness is actually quite uh, varied across Buddhist schools. It's changed uh, uh, over time in, in various traditions. Uh, and Buddhism itself is not a uh, essential essentialist entity that's unchanging. And certainly as it's uh, made its way into the, into the West over the last 100, 150 years, uh, yeah, we can expect that uh, it's going to look very different than pre-modern Asian uh, Buddhism, and it should. Uh, but um, the process of translation, I'm talking about cultural translation, is the host institutions, the dominant, uh, you could say, uh, what David McMahon talks about in his book, uh, the making of Buddhist modernism, the the social imaginaries of, of Western uh, rational uh, scientific Western society, um, we can see that mindfulness has a kind of found its host in medicine, in in psychology, uh, and in therapeutic culture. But what if mindfulness? What if it found its host, maybe in the future, in other forms uh, that of, of Western uh, sensibilities? Uh, what, if it, what if it found its host, let's say, in a uh, uh, social democratic movement? What if it found its host in uh, radical psychiatry? Uh, there, there are all sorts of other uh, Western resources, you could say, that it could be in dialogical uh, contact with. And I think that's been one of the other critiques, is that um, from, from a Buddhist modernist uh, perspective, mindfulness has embedded itself in medicine, it's embedded itself in the scientific uh, uh, paradigm, and in the therapeutic paradigm. Um, but that's not the end all story. That's not the end of the road. I mean, I think that that's just a very uh, recent phenomena, and we're beginning to see that there may be other options and alternatives for how we um, uh, take this uh, uh, ancient tradition and uh, operationalize it in our Western society in ways that go beyond just uh, reinforcing uh, capitalist and neoliberal uh, 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 interest. And that's really what I'm trying to do. I see. And you did mention that 
a lot of reference to the scientific studies seems to make it more legitimate, but the scientific standing is absolutely shaky. Is that right? It certainly is. Um, it certainly is. There are, are so many uh, studies coming out now. Um, there was that, uh, a very recent study called Mind the Hype. It was written by uh, 15 or 10 or 15 scientists recently. And many of the people, uh, many of the authors on that study are themselves uh, uh, strong advocates of mindfulness. Um, but they were, uh, I think, very honest in uh, uh, making some statements about the poor methodological uh, 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 weaknesses of most mindfulness studies, um, especially the fact that uh, if you look at random control trials, uh, many of these studies don't have uh, act, uh, active control groups. There's all sorts of uh, methodological uh, flaws. One of the big ones is uh, what they call experimenter uh, allegiance. And what that means is that uh, if the, if the head uh, scientist, if the head person that's writing the study is also the person teaching the mindfulness course, um, if you do a meta-analytic study uh, and, and you control for that, you will see that the effects or the significance uh, of the results go down dramatically when you take out uh, the, the scientist who has almost a conflict of interest in, in some ways because they're, they're actually uh, uh, advocates uh, of, of mindfulness. So there's there's just a that's really not this is really not my area of expertise. There's so many of my other colleagues that have done great work, like uh, Miguel Farias uh, and Catherine Wilcom, who wrote the book The Buddha Pill. They they go into depth with that. They and, and Miguel uh, has done a lot of great meta analytic work uh, along these lines. So where do you see the future of this mindfulness movement going? What could happen? Well, it's, it's hard to say. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know that there, there um, are people on the fringe like myself. Um, there are people in the United Kingdom um, that uh, people like Paula Haddock and uh, Rachel Lilly, uh, Stephen Stanley, who's a sociologist or critical psychologist at uh, Cardiff University, um, there's a, a network called the uh, Mindfulness for Social Change Network, and there are people that are trying to go beyond the biomedical uh, intervention curriculum, and so there's a lot of experimentation starting to happen uh, on the fringes along these lines. Um, there, there are many people out there, just, they're just not in the mainstream, and, and, and rightly so. Uh, and so I think this innovative work on the, on the fringes uh, uh, is, seems to be getting traction. And, um, and so there's a, loose, there's a loosely coupled network out there. And I think more and more people are, are coming together uh, to share, share notes and, and uh, talk about what they're doing. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's very promising uh, to move more towards uh, a notion of what my friend Kevin Healy uh, talked about, uh, what he calls civic mindfulness. And so uh, I think these initiatives um, are really 
finding ways to take self the self-care aspect of mindfulness and and turn it into a form of resistance so it's not self-care just to cope and adapt and to accept things as they are that overused trope in the mindfulness movement just accept things the way they are no let's say no i don't want to accept things the way they are i want to change them now i'm becoming more attuned um, building up my inner resources and um i could begin to link uh this to uh to movements uh that are fighting uh, oppression uh movements that are moving towards social justice and their aims and so it's, it's sort of linking then um, or moving away from our very narrowly uh, conceived uh, f- ways of, of seeing how mindfulness is using being used right now uh, for very instrumental purposes uh, for corporate uh, corporate interests or whatever to much more broader and ethically and socially engaged purpose. So I think those movements are afoot. Um, they're embryonic right now. Uh, but I think we'll see uh, some new directions in this way. And, and so, you know, civic mindfulness basically is, is saying, you know, stress is not just inside my head. You know, partly it is, partly, I mean, we have to take some ownership of, of how we react and respond to situations, of course. But stress is also in, in the body politic. Stress is also in the public sphere. And until we uh, can uh, create, uh, you could say, forms of solidarity, uh, and those forms of solidarity can be uh, uh, tied to the, the, the notion that we have a shared vulnerability of, of suffering in this kind of world we're living in, so we come together more in a dialogical approach because so much of the mindfulness curricula that are that's out there it's sitting in silence and or you go to an eight-week course and then you go off on your own you never see those people again right so liberating mindfulness really means um how can we uh how can we forge uh links of solidarity and come together that we can begin to um uh, address, you know, some of the uh, gross uh, inequalities and injustices uh, at a group and a collective level. So these problems are collective in nature. Uh, so we need to come at mindfulness from a more collective point of view, not from an individualistic point of view. Right. So it's not that, or maybe it is, you you answer this for me. What what is the bigger issue that it's infused with capitalism, pure and simple, or that it's strangled from its Buddhist roots, mindfulness? Uh, huh. I would say it's more that it's strangled by uh, capitalist the currents of capitalism. I don't really think. Uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of people get my critique wrong because they think, um, trying to say that, oh, you know, Buddhism has all the solutions. It has the superior uh, techniques and methods and, and that sort of thing. But you know what? Western Buddhism and Buddhism historically 
it comes up pretty short when it comes to social engagement, social and political engagement. Um, the thing is that, you know, Buddhism, Asian Buddhism doesn't really have a good track record along that line because it, it too is also focused on the individual liberation of, uh, of the individual. Although you could you could argue that the Mahayana movement tried to tried to move beyond that, but when we're talking about uh, traditional Buddhism, uh, one of the things that I think has limited it is that, and this is a misconstrual or you can say a misuse of the teachings of karma, because the teachings of karma in traditional Buddhism were often misused by even by kings and and other people in power to reinforce social hierarchies. Um, and so that's sort of limited uh, Buddhism to, to dealing with fundamental problems in individual terms. You know, so this whole cop-out, you know, in, in Western, not Western Buddhism, traditional Buddhism, if I'm suffering, it must be my own karma, and therefore I have to just deal with it on my own. So I wouldn't say we need to uh, 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 call for Buddhism to, to save us. I, I think that uh, what we need to do as Western Buddhists is is to um, realize that we're in a process of cultural translation and that we can draw from uh, the great, uh, some of the great Western traditions uh, because Buddhism has always sort of mixed in and, and uh, when it's uh, moved from uh, one country to another, it, it always had to interact with existing systems. So uh, at least in, you know, in India, uh, from when Buddhism went from India to China, China already had a, a really well-developed uh, uh, religious um, uh, uh, movement in Taoism and Confucianism. So it had to interact with, uh, with Taoist uh, uh, and Confucian scholars and, and so forth. And then it became a very unique form of Buddhism for China, it became Chan or Zen. Very pragmatic. It's, it stripped away all the... Uh, Indian, uh, complicated Indian uh, uh, philosophical text and became a very pragmatic tradition in China. So we need to do the same thing here. Uh, what I'm saying is like, let's go beyond psychology and let's go beyond the, uh, the medical model uh, uh, where, uh, and the scientific model where uh, mindfulness has been in, uh, in sort of embedded within those, those domains. Um, so therapeutic mindfulness and uh, really doesn't have much to offer us in, in terms of a radical potential. And, but I think the radical potential for a social mindfulness or a civic mindfulness is untapped. And that's, I think, where the, the, I think that's where the edge is for uh, the, next, uh, the next move, the next movement. So does that help to... Uh, to address your question there? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Oh great. Fascinating. Um, so so this form of critical mindfulness, you want to call it that, um, would help people to um, see how personal stress has been uh, obscured or mystified and see how it's been delinked from uh, the entanglement with capitalist and neoliberal uh, order um so what would help people like uh critically reflect on uh, on that um rather than just say okay you know 
stress is all inside your head. So, you know, you know, get with the program. Take a pill and deal with it. Yeah, it's very similar to what you see happening uh, in how psychiatry has been taken over by uh, the pharmaceutical industry. It's psychiatry uh, or talk therapy used to actually listen to people, what their complaints were. Yeah. And uh, but no, no, it's like just hand out a pill. So um, and that's that's the downside, I think, of popular mindfulness. It has become this panacea uh, and, and market it as a uh, as a cure all one size, one size fits all. And, um, you know, my issue in the book is just the incredibly exaggerated claims that people make in the mindfulness movement, those spokespersons and the leaders making to me, they're just absurd claims that mindfulness, one mindful individual at a time, you know, we just give enough, if we just spread enough mindfulness to one individual at a time, it will miraculously bring about a global renaissance or change the world and, and solve uh, global warming and, and, and everything else. It's, I think it's just uh, nonsense. Right, because we are at a critical point where we realize that as much as we are in individualistic cultures, the individual is not going to solve problems by itself, and we are deeply interconnected and rely upon one another for change. So would you recommend something to do with uh, changing the way we think about change? Yeah, I think the mindfulness movement's theory of change is... Um, is very very limited. It's it's an individual behavioral uh, uh, formula for change, and it's what I just mentioned. Uh, we change the world by first we all have to change from within. That's a big trope that you hear. Like um, if I change from within, then the world will change. Well, that's somewhat true. I mean, let's not completely negate uh, negate that claim. Uh, but that's an awfully uh, close-sounding uh, form of neoliberal uh, subjectivity. Um, so the mindfulness movement, you know, because it, it has adhered to this ideology, it's that it's the fulcrum of change is on the individual. And the fulcrum of change, uh, based on the individual, who then has to learn how to adapt uh, to our uh, existing uh, social, political, economic conditions, so there's little attention then paid to the importance of collective action right. or, community, or community formation. And I think that is uh, a blind spot. Um, and, you know, the theory of change is very ineffectual when you, have, when you base it strictly on um, therapeutic uh, interventions when it comes to changing social, political, cultural uh, uh, structures. So simply putting the burden of change uh, squarely on an individual and telling them that they, live, they need to live harmoniously with external conditions uh, is also almost a form of uh, pacification, becomes a form of uh, uh, pacification. Yeah, it's almost like uh, blindfolding a chicken and then telling it to run around because you are making a small change within your own mind but you're not actually changing any circumstances or making any external sort of shifts 
in the way things work or even being brave enough to do that because you're being pacified like you said and put down and told just if you be more mindful then one day the problem will be solved and we're still waiting for that one day when nothing is actually changing yeah yeah so i mean that's why mindfulness uh, as an individual therapeutic technique it's insufficient and um, the current uh, the current way of thinking about mindfulness is very under theorized uh, when it comes to social and political cultural change so I think that um, and in a way it's 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 creating a particular uh, form of subjectivity you know how is mindfulness uh, creating a particular subject and when you uh, when you when you dole out uh, mindfulness as uh, kind of like a pill, like you said, it's kind of uh, uh, maybe inadvertently or unwittingly creating a very passive type of person who uh, is told that uh, to go a little deeper, you know, just go a little deeper uh, into the interior, care for the self. And uh, what happens, though, is when the individual, when it just stays at that level, um, then the whole, politi- the whole political and collective uh, sphere, the whole public sphere just starts to disappear from view. And uh, it becomes a very conservative uh, movement then, a remarkably conservative movement. And we can see that uh, in some ways because uh, the, the leaders of the movement are very elite, uh, very upper uh, middle to upper class white white people, um, and uh, this disengagement from uh, the collective and from the political uh, it appeals it appeals to the self help aspect of mindfulness of kind of this consumerist uh, side of it. But it, when it becomes so disengaged, um, the Greeks had a word for this. Uh, the Greeks had a word idios, and the Greeks referred to people who were disengaged like the, as idiots. Uh, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it may be a little extreme, but I mean, um, you know, it, it's a caricature, but, you know, it's like creating passive idiots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little extreme, but, you know, it's a good image. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, I finished my questions and I'm integrating what you've said. But is there anything else you want to touch upon that we haven't in your discussion or in your book? Well, I think another issue uh, that I did not touch on in the book at all um, is that mindfulness practice um, somehow, you know, I think for some people it can be problematic because some people who are uh, in need of uh, psychological therapy may latch on to mindfulness as a substitute for that. And um, this could lead to kind of a form of spiritual bypassing. Um, It's kind of a magical form of thinking that mindfulness can solve all your deep psychological issues. Um, But it can actually be used to actually uh, suppress or numb or stuff down uh, difficult feelings. so um, I think the whole rhetoric that mindfulness is sold and touted as a path to happiness, it, it may be doing a disservice to a lot of people. Um, because I think the, 
the whole purpose of mindfulness at least from my perspective is not to make the ego happier necessarily or more comfortable and i don't think that's really addressed but i think we're starting to see a lot of people bringing this up that especially people that suffered from trauma people go on retreats or start taking up mindfulness practice so they could start re-experiencing traumatic memories and and so there is a movement among some clinicians to become better educated in dealing with trauma people that have had trauma but that also brings up the question then can mindfulness teachers who are not trained in psychotherapy or licensed clinicians can they actually be equipped to deal with this phenomena when people are going some through some very adverse effects of meditation or difficult experiences because i know in the uk with the the mindful nation initiative they want to pour a lot of money into training mindfulness teachers but those teachers won't necessarily be licensed psychologists or clinicians so i think it brings up an important question about competence and whether we're just trying to cut corners and save save costs by dumping tons and tons of dollars or pounds british pounds into into training mindfulness teachers rather than funding mental health as it should be rather than cutting you know mental health programs and scaling back the nhs and so forth right it seems like a a mixed bag because you can be trained classically in psychology or psychiatry or you can be a buddhist master or whatever you want to call it supervising students and helping them through their issues but mindfulness teachers seem like something in between like you can get a yoga degree and then go teach yoga without really knowing fully what you're doing oh yeah i mean anybody can hang out a shingle now and claim they're an expert in mindfulness go to a eight-week course or maybe a couple retreats or do an online program even i've seen just just the other day i found this guy on the, on the web who offers online mindfulness teacher certification uh, pay him like five grand and you can uh, go out and start being a mindfulness teacher hmm could be so, dangerous yeah buyer beware buyer beware <laughs> exactly well thank you so much Yana. thank you so much thanks ron if our listeners want to get in touch with you or listen to your podcast where can they do that well, you could go to ronperser.com, my website. Uh, you could go uh, to the Mindful Cranks. Uh, I have a podcast called The Mindful Cranks, uh, mindfulcranks.com or ronperser.com. All my writings and everything are on my website, and I have a new book coming out in July. Uh, it's called McMindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality. It's published uh, by Repeater Books right in London, a publisher uh, is in London. And I'll be in London, actually, uh, uh, the early week of August, doing a book launch at Foyle's Bookstore in Charing Cross Station on August 7th in the evening. So for any of your listeners in, in the London area, please come out. Hopefully we'll see you at the book signing. Oh, I, I would love that. Okay, thank you. <laughs>